Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. You're listening to the Bellman Forum Podcast. Today's June 13th. Yesterday was the on the new calendars, the Feast of the Immaculate Heart. It's beautiful. I mentioned in episode from the Feast of the Sacred Heart on Friday about this connection between the revelation of the Sacred Heart in France and Our Lady of Fatima's direction towards Russia. And history, we know. We know the connection between France and Russia, but oftentimes I don't think that people quite know because these are things that would be peculiar to Slavic minds and Slavic history and Russian history and Byzantine uh, history. And the communists, even in this country, have wiped out all of our history. But when you get to the myths, when you get to more of the people's thinking, there's a lot more going on. When Our Lady was speaking of Russia, was she tipping her hat to something called Moscow as the Third Rome? Well, I've also heard it called the Fourth Rome. We'll get into what some of that means, but let's first talk about what happened on June 13, 1917. This was the second day in Fatima when Our Lady appeared to the children. And her first message reminded the children once again to continue saying their rosary every day. She's speaking to us. We need to do that. Like Akita, that rosary is one of the two weapons. We can get... I know at Akita and Bishop Ito, I trust Bishop Ito, and I trust Sister Sasagawa that they, when Our Lady at Akita mentioned that the other weapon was the sign left by her son, I'm always wanting to think that that's the sign of the cross. Why? You get into Constantine in, in the establishment of Christendom, right? I mean, there was a law in Christendom, and it was carried over into Byzantium that you could not inscribe a cross on any horizontal surface, such as you couldn't put it, you know, if, if, if you go to Rome or you go to other places where the Romans had built roads, there's inscriptions in the bricks and stuff that have to do with where the road goes or markers or other things. You couldn't put a cross there, and it was Constantine's statement that that way the cross would never be stepped upon. It, we've gone all from that, and, and, and it was in the vision that Constantine had received that our, he saw the cross, the sign of the cross in the sky, and the comment, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. So it's always, I feel like the cross is related, and when we get to more of the story, you're going to understand why. Continuing with what happened on June 13th, the, Our Lady had also told the children their fates that uh, uh, <coughs> two would be in heaven soon, but Sister Lucia would have to stay behind because Our Lord wanted her to spread devotion to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And this was also the apparition where we're given the Fatima prayer for the rosary after each uh, decade after each mystery of the rosary that we say, we say, Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, take all souls to heaven, especially those who are most in need. 
and and our lady said, I want you to read and write and later tell you what else I want of you. So there's traditions that came from today. And it's this idea of our lady and her immaculate heart. And here she'd be coming to Sister Lucia. And Lucia's mission was to not to bang on consecrating Russia, not all this other stuff that you hear today. And, you know, about the age of peace, maybe I'll, uh, if people are interested, I'll, I'll bring up Father John O'Connor's statement that we've already lived through the age of peace, including miracles that prevented numerous times of nuclear Armageddon. Thanks be to God. But I find that today... Uh, and I'm just going to come right out with it. There's no reason to mince words. Father Gruner led people astray. He did it with talking about 90% truth, but he created this entire industry of people whose interests are misdirected in Fatima. And this whole push to, well, all of our ills today are because Russia isn't consecrated. Uh, Too bad. It has been consecrated. All of these ills are what she said. It would be too late, but her Immaculate Heart would triumph in the end. Now, on the new calendar yesterday was the Feast of the Immaculate Heart, and this was something Our Lady asked for us, was devotion to her Immaculate Heart. But I'm going to tell you more about the history between France and Russia and the Russian mindset and the Church herself. And it ties in with everything that Akita brings up, and I think you're going to have, a, I hope at least... By knowing what really happened, by seeing history for what it is, you might have a different viewpoint on what we're seeing today. Our Lady also told the children on that day that when Lucia said that, well, I have to stay here by myself all alone, Our Lady told her, no, I will be with you always, and my Immaculate Heart will be your comfort in the way which will lead you to God. Take refuge in Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Just like the Sacred Heart is really the flesh in the Blessed Sacrament that we talked about in, the, in, in the, the last episode, Our Lady's Heart wants nothing more than to bring you to her Son. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Let's go through a little wild trip of history for a moment, shall we? It's peculiar... It's, I don't think it's taught. I, a lot of this stuff I had to read, I found out a lot of it from reading Hilaire Belloc. I found, you know, and that's almost like, those are almost like contraband books. If you want to discover what was going on in the world during the so-called Dark Ages, the focus of historians in the 20th century pretty much blotted out almost all of Byzantium. And we tend to forget, I think, you know, there's these vague notions among American Catholics that there's this Eastern Church thing, and yeah, something was going on, but there's not really a good understanding. And and people, I think, know that Byzantium, Constantinople, you know, we know the song, Istanbul was Constantinople, you know that, you don't, don't make me sing it. Uh, it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night, all that. The fall of Byzantium had been seen, but in, in Fathers of the Church, I mean, that's where uh, Father, uh, where St. John Chrysostom, 
he was there. And he saw the Byzantium was riddled with beauty and a very complex life that was pretty similar. Belloc had estimated it was similar to ours and that what Muhammad had done was simplified life, gotten rid of credit banking and all this other stuff that was seen as a drag on Byzantium. That's right. You probably never realized that. Credit cards, credit accounts, paying interest on things, those were all features of Byzantium and Byzantine life. You could buy your furniture on credit. They had rent to own. They had all kinds of stuff that are not not too different than what we see today. And it was a very large cities. Constantinople was huge. Spans on, uh, you know, and it's interesting that people don't realize, I mean, it was still one of the largest churches in the world, the Hagia Sophia. And Constantinople had become known as the Second Rome. The Byzantine kings, though, were closely tied to the church and to the faith and to the, the Christendom, literally. They're, inex, they're inextricable. The last, uh, it follows in the Byzantine mind that the last king was King John, and he was believed to have been taken up like Elijah and that he would return. You can go to Mount Athos, which in the Greek world, and this is before we had the Greek Orthodox. This is the Mount Athos is uh, started off. You know, people today are like, "Oh, they're schismatics. Why do you listen to Mount Athos?" Is something different. It's been there, and the miracles attributed to Panagia Pantanasa, or the the, the the image of Our Lady that guards the the the, the Mount Athos in Greece. Uh, we can just go on and on and on. But I, I want to bring up this point that even in these documentaries, I watched a documentary and uh, they brought up the, the peculiarity that there's a clock that still keeps Byzantine time that's maintained on the top of Mount Athos and it's there awaiting the return of King John, the, Byz the last Byzantine king. Now, around the time that Byzantine, the Byzantium fell, the Slavic empires by then, St. Cyril Methodius had already brought Cyrillic, brought the faith to the Slavs, and, and the Slavs had developed quite a few kingdoms. You had the king of Lithuania, the king of Poland, you had all of the, the Moravians, all the way over into the, 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 the Tibetan horde and the Mongolian horde. And that was the tension between... You kind of got to the edge of Europe, the western edge, or the eastern edge of Europe, and then you get into Slavic turf. And the Slavs were the only thing between the Mongolians and Europe. And the Slavs were incredibly tribal, just the way the way they are. I mean, the the Rus were the same way, the Russians, and even you know that was one of the points that the in the Soviet states they had to destroy the Cossacks because the Cossacks were like regional authorities, but they didn't follow like geographic lines. They were kind of the, along a troop, uh, along a group of people. And it was the same in Poland. There were, you know, there's the old joke that Poland never got a national identity until Poles moved to Chicago. And it's because of this 
just the Slavic mindset where it's subsidiarity in a kingdom in a lot of ways because everything was governed at these small groups that were local to everything. And it was sort of regional federations of power that developed here and there over time. The last Byzantine princess was Sophia. And a couple of years ago, I got to watch, I had no idea, and uh, I was glad I watched this uh, series that was uh, produced by uh, Moscow. And it was about Ivan III, who's pretty well regarded as the one that finally brought the Russian Empire and united the Rus. And in the Russian mindset, uniting them meant, you know, freeing the Russians from the tyranny of the Polish and Lithuanian kings and the reach from, uh, from Rome and other things that would go on, as well as Ivan III was the first that stuck the horde the Mongolian raiders, the horde that would come through, you know, uh, how does that one politician say his name? Genghis Khan. You know, the Khanate had been a terror to the Rus. And Ivan III was the first one to put them in their place. He married the last Byzantine princess. There was a Russian monk, Filler, no, no, no. If I say fillerette, that's wrong. It's something along those lines. Who had written way back when, at the time, he praised the building of Moscow as the third Rome. You see, in their in their mindset, that the Romans had fallen apart and acquiesced the the worldly power to Constantinople. And when Byzantium fell, you know, Byzantium spanned the world. That's, you know, but those are the dark ages. Nothing was going on then, right? You have the rise of the Holy Roman Empire afterwards, but you also have the rise of the Russian Empire. And this concept that Russia was the rightful successor and even in that Moscow series, there's, there's back and forth between people that had come from Rome and the way Ivan III built the Kremlin. He wanted elements of things from all around the world, stuff like that. But there begins this uh, warning. Even, even in this Russian secular series, there was this cadre of people around the, the, the throne that were involved and, you know, they kind of bring it up as astrology and some sort of sorcery that's going on. And it, the way the film presents it, you know it's nothing good. And way back when, when he said, what did Russia think her errors were at the time? And they're from the uh, Anathema Sunday. The, the Russians themselves would anathematize sorcerers, Freemasons, those who channel uh, demonic spirits and basically what we're dealing with, with this world today, with the secular stuff going on and the, all of these influences away from God. And they, they have it right there that the, the seeds of error were planted right in the kingdom with that cadre of sorcerers right there in the Kremlin. Now, at the same time, that was in the 14th century jump two centuries forward 
and you get to rush you get to France. And you have great king there. And we can get way off in a rabbit hole. You should already, those of you who know uh uh European aspirations should already see some uh similarities the great king of France there's this you know these visions that a great king would arise again in France and we see this sadness over the failure to consecrate France to the sacred heart and it was a hundred years that went and that king was deposed and we saw the French Revolution the Russians interpreted the French Revolution as the triumph of the demonic, of the secular, of an anti-God world. I think they had it right. And out of that world, you know, we tend to think that the, the, the world of Freemasonry and other things was just kind of getting formed well then. One unit of alchemists and people who hold themselves in the world of esoteric stuff, people that otherwise violate the first commandment, uh, are the Rosicrucians. And you get the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, who's just like Martin Luther, the great heretic, was just a hundred years, same time that our Lord asked, you know, thereabouts, you have Martin Luther creating one of the great heresies and schisms in Europe. Napoleon was also a Rosicrucian. And there's all sorts of politics and everything else that went on within France regarding the Grand Orient, which is the, the Great Orient uh, of Freemasonry, versus the Rosicrucians, versus these Templars. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. We can go way down rabbit holes with that, but... The point to remember here is they're anti-church. And I always say that one of the greatest uh, errors that Poland made was allying with, with Napoleon. And it's because the king of Poland was a Freemason, all this other stuff, and you could, that's a whole other rabbit hole that really doesn't affect us here. I want to get to this part where Napoleon, as you know, marched across Poland makes his way into Russia. There, pressing in on Moscow. The people cried for two things. The priest organized the people and they got out there with their icons, the Blessed Mother, and they were singing the troparion of the Holy Cross. And you can... You can hear the Troparion of the Cross at the end of the 1812 Overture, which was written as, you know, this is obviously the, the fight of France versus Russia, but you hear the two anthems. On one side, you'll hear the French anthem kick up at the end, and it starts off very loud and triumphant. And you hear very faintly, O Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. That's the troparion of the cross being sung by the Russians in Moscow, placing their hope in our Lord, using his cross as a weapon and asking our Lord to defend them against their enemies. In the Russian mind, 
you saw this deg they saw this degradation of Western Europe into the secular and sorcerer's mentality. And they placed their hope in our Lord to defend them and our lady to protect them from this invasion. And they saw Napoleon is lashing out against them in order to take the power of the third Rome. It's mythology that when King John returned, this is where now underneath a lot of things. You know, Greeks have a lot of hangups about stuff. I don't know if you know that, but everything's invented by Greeks and they're superior. And even when it comes to the world of orthodoxy, there is a large battle between the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. And it's these are nuanced sorts of things. This is the, a lot of it's even beyond my reach. Even though I'm familiar with it and pay attention to it. And it's this notion, I think, in some ways, that a lot like the apostles where they said, Lord, I want to sit at your right. And our Lord said, don't do that. That's for the Father to give you. And it, you see this kind of fighting go on between different parts. And the Greeks and the Russians are no exception. The Greeks believe that King John will return to Mount Athos. After Ivan III, oh, that's right, Ivan is Russian for John. The Russians believe that King John's coming to Moscow. As a matter of fact, that's why he had Tsar Ivan, Tsar Ivan, Tsar Ivan, Tsar Ivan, because they kept trying to make it happen. It was Ivan III that married the Byzantine princess, but in the Russian mindset, it's their right to defend Christendom. You're starting to get it? There's the power of mythology, there's the power of history, there's the power of expectation. You start to see that there would be a little bit of spurned feelings if the world of as confusing and as labyrinth, labyrinthical as it may be, Freemasons are at odds with their own, with people that believe them. They're at one part of them are together with Rosicrucians because they serve the same master and they're against God. But then at the same time, they war with each other too. And so it was that Napoleon thoroughly routed and sent back to France with his tail between his legs. Thanks be to God. We get Tsar Alexander on Christmas, 139 years after the Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart was, our Lord revealed that on December 27th, and then it was on Christmas Day in Thanksgiving, his gift to Russia for Christmas. He declares and institutes, he writes a proclamation from the Tsar, declaring Christ the Savior of all Russia and creating Christ our Savior Cathedral, which would become the seat for the Russian patriarch. Ivan III had built a chapel in the Kremlin meant to be uh, rivaling all of the great, uh, great, cathedrals of Rome, even bringing over Roman architects and stuff like that. But when Tsar Alexander built Christ our uh, Savior Cathedral, he meant it to be like the Hagia Sophia. Do you get it yet? Third Rome. 
where some might say the fourth Rome. The mythology lives on there that Christendom, if it's to survive in the world, and just look at what those French are, I mean, to put yourself in your mind back then. Well, those French have given up. Look at what they're sending over here. Some stupid, look at the king of Poland. He's a mason and helped him out. Is there anywhere in the world where there's a Christian leader? Was there? You'd have to wonder, right? Look at England. England was Anglican. You had the Pope in Rome, and you had the fall of the Germans. Look at what, for the Holy Roman Empire, from a Russian viewpoint, what good were they? If they could yield somebody like Luther and destroy half of Europe uh, in, within a few years. And then you get to this creature like Napoleon crawling up out of the sea, coming all the way across Europe to come vanquish the Romans, I mean the Russians. Think about that. From their viewpoint, if Christendom was good, if Constantine was right, if Byzantium was good, then the world will fight Christendom, right? Napoleon represented the Antichrist coming to vanquish them. And our Lord, their reliance on Our Lady, Our Lady of Vladimir, and the cross, yielded the triumph of the cross, our Lord saved Christendom. You starting to get the feel for this yet? We're not talking about politics. We're talking about an understanding, and this is tougher for Americans because we've learned to acquiesce to the idea that governance is tied with our religion. If there's the notion of Christendom and, and I have a number of monarchist friends that bring this stuff up, and the, the distributists are always a little bit sympathetic to monarchism. But where do you go in the world to find a leader that is also Christian? In the Russian mindset, post-Napoleon, they were it. Get it? You kind of Poland was kind of coming around and getting themselves straightened out, but as far as empires go, they were it. And they just routed the Antichrist. And in Thanksgiving, they created the largest uh, cathedral, Christ our Savior. This only begins to scratch the surface of all this, but I don't think that most people know it. And so I wanted to bring it up. And, you know, I've always talked about it, I want to talk about it, I want to talk about it. And I thought I better just start talking about it because... You know, I've been talking about it, talking about it for 15 years or longer. I mean, heck, reading Belloc stuff back in the 90s, and it was just blowing my mind. And it gets very rich when we start looking at Fatima. When the Bolsheviks came, do you know the first thing they destroyed? I'll give you one guess. It was the revenge. Some have said that the Bolshevik Revolution was revenge for the destruction of Napoleon. And it, all of Russia would be crushed. This also gets into the Tsar refusing a loan for the war from the Rothschilds and defeating. Some said that the Rothschild family wanted to fund both sides and therefore profit from both sides loaning money for the war effort. And the Tsar refused that loan. And so some have said that the Bolshevism being 
levied on Russia was Rothschild's revenge. Others see it as the devil's revenge for having routed the Antichrist Napoleon. Either way, Napoleon was a Rosicrucian, and that'll become key in a moment. 1917, the Bolsheviks come. They're funded with money out of New York. And people were sent from all over the world to go become a Bolshevik in Russia. Did you know that? Yeah, that's true. It's indisputable. They might be deleting references that to these days, but it is what it is. So the Russian Revolution wasn't really just these peasant Russians. It was a foreign invading force brought in. And their first goal was to take out Christ our Savior. In its place, they wanted to build the Palace of the Soviets. No joke, you can't make this stuff up. It was looked like this Tower of Babylon thing, and it would have, it was supposed to have, I think, Lenin on top of it. God, not to be mocked, or his mother saying, I don't like what you did to my son's cathedral, made sure that they were never actually able to build it. Problems, engineering problems kept coming up. One time the, uh, the foundations flooded. It's right there on the Moscow River, right outside the Kremlin. And, you know, and you'd think for something that was so important to them that they, in generating all of the, I mean, when you can beat people to come up with things, they could never come up to the solutions that would fix this problem. Become years later, Christ our Savior Cathedral's there, and it was Putin that put federal money because he wanted it done by the Jubilee year in 2000. They were taking too long to rebuild it. One of the first things he wanted done was that, was that cathedral to be rebuilt. Now, I mentioned briefly, just to talk about all this history that never gets brought up and that you're distracted away from. In 1917 in America, there was something called the, the 68th Convocation of the Order of the Rose and Cross, otherwise known as the Rosicrucians. The same order of alchemists, they talk about mind control, they talk about psychology, they talk about all this other kind of stuff. They published a book called The Laws of the 68th Convocation. I don't know. The numbers probably mean things to them. After all, they're all into numerology and all this esoteric stuff, right? For our purpose, all we need to know is they prided themselves on having brought five magi from around the world to consecrate a grove. Now, do you remember years ago there was this part in Russia where you could see from the sky that a large uh, pentacle had been in a star. I think it was in uh, Kazakhstan. And people were saying, wow, what is that? What is that? Um, I got news for you. Who do you think, just listen to that for a minute, five magi brought from around the world to where? Beverly Hall, Pennsylvania in 1917. And they consecrated a grove. Mm, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't to our Blessed Mother. It was nothing that God had anything to do with. I can only imagine what sort of demon or the demon that that place was consecrated to. Did you know that? 
you know, when you bring up Rosicrucians to most people, they're like, oh, those old fuddy-duddies, they don't mean anything. No, they mean something. Was that that? convocation that they announced their plans and they said that the great seal of the united states had within it contained things they put there and at the capstone if you look at the seal you see that pyramid with the eye atop right the big questions that they answered in their book it's all published so you can get it on the internet archive uh, or you can go to the library and get the book the book's hard print been around it was published right contemporaneous in 1917 they brought these people from Rosicrucians that belong to this order from all around the world. In Beverly Hall, where they are, you know, you wonder where they get their money. There's this large stone temple that's built there. It looks very Egyptian. Palm trees, all kinds of other stuff, you know. But it's fascinating because they say that the, that the capstone on the seal of the pyramid was not connected, and it would not be connected until... America was united again with the power of the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, that's where the Aztecs were. That's where the human sacrifice was. That's where the esoteric order that built those pyramid-looking things down there was. With hidden priesthoods and astronomy and a lot like Mayan stuff, the Aztecs had their own calendar and had a lot of... Uh, um, readings and stuff and they followed a uh followed a winged serpent god like you can't make his stuff up uh quixicotal and it was uh he it's time when the crusaders were coming they recorded that quixicotal had come and spoken to them in his human form he looked like a blue-eyed blonde-haired man and then he said that he had to depart from them and he was headed to the east of it he would return and he transformed into this winged serpent god, took off into the sky, and flew away. That's the Aztec beliefs for you. That's their own writing. I, I didn't make this stuff up, and it's nothing way making things up. But that's their mythology. Then you have this group of power broker Rosicrucians in 1917. And it's funny, because in their own writings, the... Uh, uh, author of the book said that many of the members were confused because the rings that the Magi wore contained symbols they didn't recognize. Apparently the Rosicrucians were expecting to see a, hexa a hexagon in there, but the, the Magi that came had pentacles in them. Mm, I'll give you an idea. Uh, you know, Satanists are into that stuff and magicians, and we're talking about alchemists and whatever happened in the uh, and I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, consecrating that grove. It just wasn't anything that would be pleasing to our Lord, right? And I've brought it up in an old post that one of the few times you see the angel with the flaming sword was to block Balaam from going the magician. Balaam the magician from going to curse Israel. You remember he had the talking donkey Angel appears, he's got the flaming sword. He took a swipe at Balaam and had the donkey not stopped, his head would have been taken off by that angel. And what do we see at Fatima other than the angel with the flaming sword? He was sending, issuing flames to the earth. 
And he said, penance, penance, penance. In the last episode, we talked about modernist, you know, take the extension of modernism and it's people deifying themselves, self-deification, the neo-paganism. It's, it's the same thing. It's what's going on when they consecrated that grove. And so part of this history that we never talk about that all influences and that Fatima has something to do with. You've got Russia. Things going on with Russia. The mythology and the understanding of Russia. When you bring Akita into it, there's fights within the church. The devil would enter the church such that you'll see cardinal against cardinal, bishop against bishop. And you look at this idea that the Russians had when they saw where the leadership in Europe was going and it produced the fruits of Napoleon, the Rosicrucian, and they smote him. And we see these ties. The Rosicrucians came again and right when Fatima's happening, there they are, consecrating uh, in Pennsylvania, Beverly Hall, Pennsylvania, establish, reestablishing their order here and then declaring that their whole goal is to unite Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, and America. And it, it would be at full power when they did that again and restored the ancient right. Oh, if you want the restoration of the Aztec rights, are you good? Are you doing what our Lord asks? Are you worshiping God who has revealed himself to us? I think it's hard for people to understand it that you'd be organized efforts that go towards these things, but they're there. Leo XIII had it right, subsumed in everything that it, he had written about. Humanogenes, he, he, you know, it wasn't just Freemasons, it was all these allied organizations, and it's because they have one father. You know, they might bicker amongst themselves, they might have different ideas about how they'll bring about the kingdom they wish to make, but they're there. And the Pope saw them, the Pope understands, and he saw that the devil would enter the church, Our Lady's warning about it, and they're over here wreaking havoc. Makes a little more sense why we see the things we do. There's several other things in that book they talked about, among other things, eugenics and other stuff that some would find interesting. We just need to look at Martin Luther, who was one of them. And when I saw years ago that they were raising Martin Luther in the Vatican, and I saw that red statue of him, I thought, boy, if people don't know what this means... They're either blind or this is really just somebody thumbing their nose right at us saying, take that. I think it's the latter. Just like the Pachamama thing in the Amazon basin and, you know, we want women priests and so we're going to get, uh, even though we're going to use this primitive statue of it, you know, the cult of Diana uh, is coming back. And uh, just like it was in the ancient times, we brought. We talked about all that when that happened. Moscow is the fourth Rome, though, and you have a leader, Putin, who wants a Christian nation. Puts a cathedral, the Hagia Sophia, 
you start to see why the Bolsheviks went after Russia, right? And you see the destruction and everything that had been wrought on the Russian people. And it all started with destroying Christ our Savior. God bless the Russian people for at least keeping that reliance on Our Lady. I can go into other stories about Stalin and when the Germans... No, it's that Russian psyche again, right? Maybe I'll bring it up now, because it ties it together. You have the Sacred Heart, trying for the Cross. You have the Immaculate Heart. Stalin, when Hitler's divisions had reached Moscow, remembered things his mother had told him and was at the urging of the Russian priests who had been pretty much jailed and forbidden from the monastery and other places. Stalin called for the icon of Our Lady of Vladimir, protectress of Moscow and all Russia, to be gotten out of storage and flown in a plane around Moscow. And he asked the priest to implore her help to protect Moscow from the scourge of Hitler. You know how that worked out, right? There was a relaxing after that of the prohibitions against the priests. And they were allowed to practice, although that was how many years after the Bolshevik Revolution, much of much of the uh, damage had been done, and uh, certainly the Christ our, uh, our Savior Cathedral had not yet been restored. Stalin only worked in half measures, but at least he understood who underneath all of it was the beginning of putting Our Lady back in charge of Moscow. And that happened during that age of peace. I think that, well, it wasn't the age of peace, that was a little bit later, but it was one of those moves that softened what could have been. It was one of those moves that most people don't like to talk about, but I think it was faithful Catholics playing their rosary was able to bend that cold, stony heart of Stalin's to make him realize you have to turn to God for something. And it's Our Lady who protects Moscow. And somewhere in Stalin's mind, he recalled his mother's imploring of Our Lady. It was Our Lady of Vladimir that saved Moscow again. The triumph of the cross and the sacred heart. And you have the beginnings of the restoration of Moscow after the Bolsheviks by Our Lady of Vladimir. Little things that just look so different from a Russian perspective, and they all have to do with Fatima. You know the Our Lady of Vladimir. That's the one where Our Lady is looking at you and our baby Jesus has his cheek pressed up to hers. And he's giving her a hug. It's that mother's heart looking after her child. We all know that that's how that works. Moscow has something special. It endeared ourselves themselves to our Lord, particularly by imploring his help. And that's what Our Lady asks us. Be devoted to our Immaculate Heart. Be devoted to the Sacred Heart. They'll save us. They'll help us. 
But all this talk about consecrating Russia, I think you guys missed the boat. That's done. We're on to other things now. We need to keep praying our rosary because we need somebody to consecrate our church, don't we? I think so. I mean, we talked about the modernists yesterday. Somebody's got to convert those guys. They need converted. And they can't, this is why things are not functional. You know, there's so many names for it. There's relativism. There's everything else. But at the end of the day, if they think they're God, they're no different than those sorcerers and the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons that are the heirs of Russia, right? And there it is in the middle of the church, modernists. They don't believe or they refuse to acknowledge that God is real. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You have been listening to the Bellarmine Forum podcast. I am your show host, John B. Manos, president of the Bellarmine Forum. Today's episode is the second apparition of Fatima in the Russian, I don't know what I should call it. Let's think about that for a minute. I don't know. What certainly should be the Immaculate Heart. How about this? How about this? The Immaculate Heart in Moscow is the third slash fourth Rome. Would that work? Or should we call it Our Lady Will Crush the Rosicrucians? Or myths, history that you didn't know and why Fatima was pivotal? No, I shouldn't call it that. That sounds, that sounds too grandiose. We're only scratching the surface. There's so much more. You get into all of the detail there. It's incredible. What I hope I've done in this episode, though, is make you understand that Russia was selected for a reason as a target by the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks were being used at the hands of the enemies of God. There's a reason Our Lady, with her Immaculate Heart, is going to lead all this back. There's a reason why she wanted Russia consecrated by the West. And we've done it. Now the rest of it has to work out. Just like she said, it'll be done, but it'll be too late. But in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. Today was the beginning of that message where she told us... We will not be alone. She told that to Sister Lucy. She will be with her, and her immaculate heart will be there to comfort her. Now, production of this episode was underwritten by an anonymous donor that asked you to say your rosary daily. If you would like to underwrite production of the podcast, contact the forum using the contact form on the website, bellamanforum.org, or call us. This podcast is a production of the Bellarmine Forum, formerly known as the Wanderer Forum Foundation, founded in 1965 on the heels of Vatican II as a faithful enclave of the Catholic faith. That means we believe that God is real. Without the progressive modernist confusion, which means that, you know, God actually speaks in words and there's testimony from the apostles. It's not just some, like, loose force of history. 
Our producer sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Our executive director made all things visible and invisible. Our technical director is an unnamed angel because you're not supposed to name angels unless they tell you. Assigned by the producer per show. The Bellman Forum is a nonprofit public charity and all donations are tax deductible to the maximum extent permitted by law. This show is copyrighted by the Bellman Forum 2021. Hey, Ivan. Ivan. Why didn't you say anything when I was talking about Dazar Ivan? Would you rather I call you John now? King John? Well, let's see there. King John's helped us with the show. To the greater glory of God and the honor of his blessed mother. Amen.